verses in verse 25, what he must do to inherit eternal life, the age-old question. And you probably recall that that road to eternal life, at least as it exists through the law, the Mosaic law, requires that you first love God completely and then love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus responds, do this and you will live. Love perfectly for your entire life. That's all it takes to fulfill the law. So I somewhat publicly lamented last week that if this is the only way to get to God, if this is the path that I must do to inherit eternal life, my future looks pretty bleak. Love God with all your heart, all the time, and your neighbors as yourself for your entire life. Personally, I've never met anyone who loves God with their whole heart. I've met plenty of people who divide their love for God with other things like possessions and cars and careers and people and bank accounts, all kinds of different things that the world offers us. I've also never met anyone who perfectly loved their neighbor as his or herself. We aren't usually near as concerned about how well-funded our neighbor's retirement is as we usually are about our own. There's in each of us a strong sense of self-preservation, which most of often places ourselves first. So we discovered last week that we need to continuously strive, continuously work against the sinful flesh, to even remember to do things as simple as send a card to someone who's sick. Long strides we take in doing things like that. Even dropping a phone call or a text to someone who may be ill. Folks, if the way to loving your neighbor as yourself is the way to eternal life, we're doomed. We're doomed. But that doesn't suggest at the same time that we don't have any capacity to love. Fallen humanity, in fact, does retain some level of mutual concern. It's a reflection of our created being in God, that reflection of God that we share and God is love, we know. So civilization would disintegrate, folks, if civilization didn't have any concept of what love was. It'd completely fall apart. Surely we know people, even an unbelieving husband and wife, a couple whose, whose love for one another, their concern for one another, the displays are at many times just the most delicate expressions of love. And family is one of the greatest blessings that we've each experienced uh, among mankind. Just think if we didn't have family and the love that's shared among family members typically. Uh, that's why it's so difficult when losing family members. We get a love from our family that the world doesn't demonstrate towards us. Neighbors are usually a little bit more challenging. Can I just say that? So in measuring himself against the law, this, this lawyer in our passage, he requests clarification from Jesus exactly, what is a neighbor? After his conscience convicted him that he had not fulfilled the law, he'd fallen short of the requirements of the law as it should convict all of us. He's still attempting to justify himself, still trying to find a way that he can measure up in verse 29. So he asked Jesus, who qualifies as my neighbor? Who, who's my neighbor? And, and, and today we have the response from Christ. Believe it or not, in Israel, the prevailing opinion 
in the spiritual circles, the religious leaders, was that the only ones who were your neighbor were the righteous alone. Just the righteous. The social order of the day which condemned all sinners, the sick and the diseased, the tax collectors, the Gentiles and the Samaritans, they didn't view those people as neighbors. Those weren't the neighbors. Neighbors were instead categorized according to to increasingly large concentric circles of social relationships. The innermost circle, of course, would be the priests. They're at the temple. The next closest circle would be the Levites who assisted the priests in the temple. And and then, of course, you had the devout Jews who, who did all within their human ability to follow the law they were devout and then the gentiles are out there further and and finally somewhere way out at the pacific rim is the samaritans who the jews loathed Um, so a neighbor was classified by how closely they adhered to the law how righteous they were according to the law and you're all probably thinking you know that's just ridiculous where would they ever come up with that presupposition That's just silly. Let me draw attention to your probable response last week when we talked about neighbors for a little bit. And without immediately realizing it, you likely made a very similar error. But rather than categorizing your neighbors as increasingly concentric and increasingly large social circles of people as they moved further from you, you probably defaulted to categorizing your neighbors through increasingly distant geographical locations, right? Who are my neighbors? How close do they live to me? The neighbor across the street, he's surely a neighbor. And and then, of course, there's your city block, perhaps a school district, and then maybe your town. How far out does this circle of neighbors go? Why did you come to that conclusion? Why did you begin to determine your neighbors or your neighborhood by how close they live to you in proximity. Your notion is the same that of, uh, of the lawyer. It's your, it's your culture that has defined for you what your neighbor is. Consequently, the lawyer asks, how far outside of my social circle do I have to go to still categorize someone as a neighbor? Well, we sit asking, well, how far out from my geographical circle do I have to go to still regard someone as my neighbor? Because if you're at a ski vacation, you're in Vail, Colorado, and you're in the rental car and you're pumping up your car with gas, and there's some other guy three pumps down from you, it's unlikely that you're going to view them as a neighbor. Got me? That's all about to change, folks. Jesus is going to blow out of the water our concept of neighbor, entirely out of the water. Let's read the passage together here, beginning in verse 30 before going any further. The question again asked is, by the lawyer, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed up by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
who was on his journey, or on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Jesus then asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Obviously, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is present in this parable. A parable, folks, is just an earthly illustration of a spiritual reality. An earthly illustration used to explain a spiritual reality. But rather than answering the question directly, Jesus, in typical, just genius, answers instead by showing this lawyer what a neighbor looks like doesn't tell him who is his neighbor. He tells him what a neighbor looks like and how a neighbor should behave. It's probably one of the most recognizable parables of Jesus. It's found only here in Luke. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. And this man demonstrates compassion on a man who was robbed. He was stripped. He was beaten. He was left for dead. Uh, The robbery occurred on a rocky, a very windy road, a descent from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It had a reputation for harboring bandits, the road to Jericho. Walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was historically dangerous for Jews. It's a dangerous proposition. So the lawyer listening to Jesus would have immediately presumed that. He would have recognized that right right away as being a very plausible scenario. The dangerous road down to Jericho. And it was a gruesome sight. I don't know about you, but most of us would not want to handle a bloody, naked, beaten, dirty, gravelly, half-dead body. If we really get down to it. In, In fact, if we're honest with our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us might identify more with the priest or the Levite who tried to find a way to get around the situation. Neither one of them really wanted to deal with this man laying in the road. And if you insist, well, that that could never, that could never describe me. Not possibly. Just think to the last time that you sped by quickly when someone was broken down by the side of the road. Struggling to change a tire. And and how quickly we can conceive an excuse in in order to get ourselves out of helping in the situation. You know, I'm late for something. I've got somewhere that I've got to be. When so often there's just no place that we really need to be. Or, Or, you know, it could be dangerous. That guy didn't have his flashers on. He's off to the side of the road there. You know, it's going to get dark in an hour or so. It could be dangerous being alongside a road. And and I'm not suggesting you throw all caution to the wind, but stopping to help someone beside the road who is in need, who might be vulnerable, is probably not near as dangerous as stopping on a road and exposing yourself. 
at a place where there's a half-dead body, uh, giving evidence that there's robbers, bandits right nearby, ruthless outlaws ready to pounce. It was surely dangerous. So dangerous was an an excuse that stopped the Samaritan. What also seems counterintuitive in the story is that it is the priest and the Levite. They would have likely been the first two classes that the lawyer would have viewed as his neighbors. They were the closest to his social circle and knowing them to be religious folk. They were the religious type, very familiar with the scriptures. Um, He would probably expect that they would be the first to stop, the religious people, to show the man mercy, to respond. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Jesus doesn't provide a lot of supplemental information other than the priest and the Levite were not helping the robbed and beaten Jew. They were not rendering aid as required of a neighbor by the law. A person just can't help but draw the parallel thinking about this, about, about the spiritual abuse that was occurring in Israel. The spiritual abuse at that time. The people were like sheep without a shepherd. Persons who suffered were poor, were physically ill, had a malady, a birth defect, were normally regarded as sinners. Therefore, the priests and the Levites maintained a level of distance, a separation from anyone who may look unclean in some way. Their religion, folks, was a shell. And it was a sham. And if you won't believe this, the same time each Sabbath scriptures were being read, homilies were being preached, prayers were being offered, songs were being sung, money was being collected, but nobody was loving their neighbors. And the priest and the Levites, who were most familiar with the law, they should have been the ones stepping in, folks. They should have been stepping in and pointing out the failure. But then if they pointed out the failure, they would have had to prove themselves a solution to the problem as well and lead away in fixing it. And it's really much easier to step around a problem and walk around the other side than to actually do something about it. Isn't it? Enter a Samaritan. In verse 33, But a Samaritan, who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. What is that word, folks, as we've been studying through Luke? Gerald? Splunk nitsumai. That innermost feeling of concern. The Samaritan expressed and felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. You probably first noticed that the Samaritan is on a journey. He was not near his home, but was traveling through Israel. That should 
immediately nullify our idea of neighbor as being someone who geographically lives next to you. It, it doesn't reflect that. It doesn't correlate exclusively to the person who lives across the street. That corrects our error. Also, being a neighbor has nothing to do with spheres of social relationships. The Samaritan and the beaten Jew had no commonly shared social relationship. In fact, the woman at the well reminds us in John chapter 4 that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So that corrects the error of the lawyer. So what then does the true concept of being a neighbor seem to entail? Well, it involves demonstrating mercy wherever you find yourself and a need arises. Could be on your street. It might be while you're traveling on vacation. It could be in your workplace or it may be in your own church, folks. Welcome to your neighborhood. It's wherever you are. Wherever you find yourself. The lawyer would have been immediately offended that a Samaritan would be elevated in Jesus' illustration as a neighbor who does good. A Samaritan who does good. You've heard that story enough times. It's a contradictory statement in Israel. But the development of the parable, the progression, allows him to reach no other conclusion. I love how Jesus steered this. In verse 37, he asks him, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Narrows it right down. It's like when Gerald and Andrea talk about supper with the kids, right? You could have broccoli or Brussels sprouts or spinach, and we're out of broccoli and we're out of spinach. Which of the three do you want? I'll take Brussels sprouts. Jesus narrows it down for him. There's no way out, folks. There's no way out. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, you go and you do the same. The principle of the parable is this. Just, just go and imitate the Samaritan. Go and prove yourself a neighbor. Not by just keeping your own grass cut, though you should. Not by picking up your own doggies do though that would be the appropriate thing to do, and it is your responsibility. Folks, it's just astounding. It's astounding to me in America. The criteria people give for themselves being good neighbors. I always pick up my own doggies do. Wow. Shocking. What a great neighbor you are. Boy, our idea of a neighbor is lacking, folks embarrassing if you really want to consider it the criteria we use to think of ourselves as good neighbors but you prove yourself to be a neighbor through demonstrating mercy to the one you've encountered who's who's destitute who's somehow injured or unable to care for themselves Uh, let me just try to amplify what this neighbor really looks like quickly here And great self-restraint needs to be used whenever assigning values to parables. Over-allegorizing passages, especially parables, because over the centuries just a lot of damage has been done 
parables have been stretched, they've been distorted, had the values assigned to them from all kinds of different stuff that Scripture never intended them uh, to be there. God never intended to be there. But let me just share how I believe the Samaritan looks and you decide if you agree. The Samaritan was from a foreign land and was only traveling through Israel on a journey. While the priest and the Levite had failed to show love like a neighbor, as they should, the Samaritan stopped and displayed an extraordinary level of splonknitzamai, compassion to the abused and neglected Jew. He did not exhibit any concern about preserving his own self-interests, nor did he flee fearing for his own bodily harm. Instead, he took the time to carefully bandage and heal the wounds of the injured. He covered the man's nakedness, presumably with clothing of his own. He lifted man to his own beast when the wounded man was completely incapable of raising himself. He carried him to a safe place and took care of him. The Samaritan expressed no concern over expenditures of financial resources nor personal cost. The Jew, having already been beaten and robbed, had nothing to pay back with anyhow. No capacity to repay. It was all by grace. And so money was of no concern to the Samaritan other than the temporal benefit it could provide to someone else in need. And then before departing to go again on his journey, (laughs) he passed the responsibility for caring of the wounded to another. And he promised him, whatever it costs you when I return, I will repay in full. (laughs) You get a picture of what this good Samaritan looks like Boy, does he look like Jesus. And I'd probably not carry the allegory to this extent if it weren't how the Jews themselves looked at Jesus, how they lashed out at Jesus in John 8, verse 48, saying, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan? They added, You have a demon. You know what Jesus' response was? I don't have a demon. He didn't have a demon. He obviously, we know he wasn't a Samaritan. He was a true Jew. But he seems to concede, call me by whatever you want to call me. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. So that you will know and understand that my Father is in me And I am in the Father. (laughs) Folks, regardless of your conclusion to this parable, the identity of the Samaritan, Jesus is the perfect image of a neighbor. He selflessly loved others. You know, whenever his disciples got to the point where they wanted to shoo people away, you know, go, go away, they're bothering. Or, Or when they didn't have time for those calls through the crowd David, Son of God, have mercy on me. What did Jesus do? Show compassion all the time. Well, walking on the earth, Jesus fulfilled those requirements of the law on our behalf. He loved God 
the Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He displayed his love for us most vividly through abandoning his own self-preservation while bearing the weight of our sins on the cross. It was on that cross where he died that he ultimately showed humanity what it means to love. From our scripture reading earlier in James 2 verse 8, James emphasizes what has been referred to as the royal law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And though we don't love perfectly, and we won't consistently have the the same concern for neighbors every day as we do for our own needs, still the Holy Spirit supplies to us the ability to love our neighbors. The Holy Spirit gives the capacity to Christians to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And dwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God Himself, Christians have been granted that capacity to offer the right response in the time of need with the right motive. We have that capacity to love our neighbors. Yet we still need to make that decision about how we are going to respond because the sinful flesh is going to point us towards self-preservation. But the Spirit of Christ will overrule our flesh and He will prompt us and provoke us to helping others. The Spirit will win. We will let Him rule in our hearts. So as you and I encounter an emergency situation or just someone in need, markedly in need of mercy, Because of the power invested in the Word of God, as we read it, it's inherent in the Word of God, we now know, we now know immediately to identify ourselves as the neighbor. We're the neighbor. And the presence of need is our neighbor. We are to respond to that neighbor. It's the only reasonable response any of us can have is to respond to the need of our neighbor. Folks, just imagine yourself in their position the next time you see it. Picture yourself broken. Or picture picture yourself broken down. Picture yourself beside the road or ill or sick and unable to help yourself. Imagine you're the one who has been robbed. How would you want the person passing by to respond? Like the priest? Like the Levite? Those who are just outwardly religious? Or like Christ? And as the Holy Spirit is alive in your heart and mine, as we have been called to Christ, we are compelled to respond as Christ did, folks, quickly and with mercy. So when that urge comes to hesitate, to contemplate what's in our best interests, and it will. That urge will come. The command by Christ is to respond by imitating this Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Folks, historically, I have not responded as I should much of the time. I haven't responded as often as I should much of the time. That changes today. 
Scripture tells Christians to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think about it. So that you will prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Romans 12, verse 2. It also says, present your your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, folks. Acceptable Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So what changes is our thinking and in our response to the word of God. I am a child of God and I will respond as the spirit provokes me and as the father asks me to respond to his will. If I don't, I prove my religion is a shell and a sham. Proves worthless in the fact that it has not changed my life or my actions and that mercy has not been displayed through my life I have not proved my na- myself as a neighbor or as a Christian. What use is it, my brethren, says James? If someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? The answer to the question is no. And if Christians would heed God's word, they would heed it, truly heed it, would actually begin behaving and acting like neighbors as Christ, folks, the world would be amazed by what they would see. What they would see God accomplishing through us. One uh, departing caution. I'll offer that, uh, offer that Jesus' responses were were clear, real, bona fide responses to needs. That's a caution. The widow, the blind man, the leper, those who could not take care of themselves. I don't think he's demanding that we wash cars in our neighbor's driveway. Well, they watch football eating chips. So we've got to come across as more than just being nice to people, folks. We've got to bear another one's need. If he's able-bodied, he can wash his own car. You can eat, sit and eat chips and watch a football game while Ohio State loses 49 to 20. <laughs> My point is, sorry, Gerald. <laughs> Christians aren't aimless do-gooders is the point I want to make as we close. Endlessly just being busy with the hope that somebody will think that we're nice In our passage we get to observe next week, it'll be Mary and Martha. Martha kept herself very, very busy. But uh, Mary chose the good part for herself. That will be next week, folks. Until then, as we honorably serve Christ, we are now better prepared to respond to imitate Him as He has revealed Himself to us. He says, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, oh, you're so good to us. As you reveal to us uh, your love, Lord, as you truly showed it and as you demonstrated compassion, Father, um, we just marvel at uh, your greatness. And uh, as we see Christ, our Savior, uh, walking his own various footsteps on the earth and Lord, the impact that was made uh, 
in his life, Lord, we'd ask that our own would reflect that. That we too would love our neighbor as ourself. That as we're given the capacity to respond, that we would do so knowing that, Lord, this is what pleases you, and that's why you left us here. Father, we pray for our church, the love that we share together in Christ. And uh, Lord, we ask that you use it to magnify uh, his holy name, that people would be one to faith through the love of our behavior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.